0: Telling <that> you, bro, what's been happening, uh, bro? Not
1: too much. Still okay. to hitting more, Peggy old. <casuallyuttering> Hi, my name is Shane Terrio, and you are listening to The Riff Raft. Mm-hmm. So Music, stories, and insights from the front line. Riff Raft. Riff
0: Raft. Riff Raft. Riff By body
1: Welcome to another edition of The Riff Rav. My guest today is Mr. Zachary Richard. Zachary is a songwriter, performer, poet, activist. He's kind of like a Cajun Renaissance man who's done it all. He's never ceased promoting, educating others about the French identity of South Louisiana and his Cajun heritage, which makes it really special for me. Beginning his career in the early 1970s, he took off for France, started a band, went to New York, recorded records. He's now amassed 25 records, multiple Grammy nominations. He's written children's books poetry. He's got numerous documentaries. He's a pretty amazing guy. He's also employed uh, some great guitar players. Among them, Sonny Landreth and Bill Dylan. We'll talk about both of those guys. We'll discuss songwriting guitars we'll play some songs it's a sunday morning beautiful and we're just sitting in the front parlor of my house drinking green tea and talking about music always loved zachary's music and gotten to work with him a lot hadn't seen him in a while so this was a nice surprise thanks again for listening i've been getting a lot of great comments once again i'll just say please leave me a nice review on itunes if you like or comment it really helps move this thing up it's been moving up actually in the charts and it inspires me to make more i'm uh, just getting off tour here back in new york from this hollow uh, notes summer tour and trying to crank these things out they take a lot of work to edit so i really appreciate you listening I'm sitting in uh, my house in New Orleans with my good friend Zachary Richard. Zachary, thanks for coming over on a Sunday morning.
2: It's always a pleasure, man. You know, come over here and have some matcha and some Japanese Japanese sweets. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Life in New Orleans. Man, I was uh, thrilled to hear from you the other day and I spent yesterday in the studio with you recording on your new record. It was great to... uh... It's been a while since we actually hung out, so...
2: Thanks for coming. It was... uh um always as always uh, a pleasure to hear you play man you know um, and we were able to survive a session with David Torkanowski. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not the first time i've i've I kind of know how to survive those now been through a bunch of them, but you know for the listeners uh zachary i'll I'll have your a lot of your uh discography and history and stuff posted but um Zachary, I guess you first. We first got together probably close to 10 years ago, maybe. I remember getting a call, and I played mm-hmm. Festival to KDN with you in Lafayette.
2: Well, that was, again, thanks to David, you know. So yeah. I, I said, man, I said, uh, I need a guitar player. He said, well, you got to call Shane. He's the cat, you know, so he was right
1: (laughs) yeah well and and i remember that gig man it was a lot of fun it was outside it was at night and um you know my my dad was a a big Mm. fan of yours i remember him being at the gig you know Mm. him and my mom and they loved it but uh ever since then let's see after that we played numerous gigs man we did montreal jazz festival we did stuff in france well the 2009
2: jazz festival is uh was recorded for DVD, right. as you recall. So there was uh, Paul Picard, um, Yolanda Robinson, uh, the infamous David Torkinowski. is the third time I say his name in this. In
1: <laughs> don't minutes. worry, I'll <laughs> edit all these out. I won't give him this much airtime. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, that was you know that was uh, an amazing rhythm section and a lot of fun. For it me. was a lot so, of fun.
1: You know. Well, this is a unique episode. For me, because number one, this is the first one I've ever done sitting at my house in New Orleans, which is really special. Mm -hmm. And also because, you know, it's it's more of a uh, I've had some Louisiana artists on, but you're definitely the most probably direct as far as, uh, you know, just our ancestry. We share, you know, a lot of people don't realize the Mm -hmm. Cajun ancestry, the Terrio, you know, Richard. We Mm -hmm. were the original, a lot of the original exile, the names that were. uh, Absolutely. Yeah. and I know that's a big part of your music and we're going to talk about all of that because I want people to understand where you come from that really brings it close to home you know in in that respect too Uh,
2: it's a it's a a root that continues to nourish me and surprise me you know and and I just did a a documentary that and it's English version is called Cajun Heart and basically I went to um, all of the places that our ancestors had occupied, starting at Port Royal in Nova Scotia, into the Grand Beau Beaubassin, Île-Georges, which was the place that um, interned the Acadians during the, uh, during the exile before they ultimately wound up coming to Louisiana. And I'm just kind of amazed that anybody even cares. I mean, it's been 250 years mm-hmm. and... Cajun culture has been assimilated and denigrated and ridiculed for most of the time that we've been in Louisiana. In spite of which, there's this real resonance um, with every gener- every generation. Kind of redefines its relationship to the tradition and to the culture. The music um, is very popular. The language is very um, threatened by uh, assimilation, but ultimately it's still here. And, and somehow this tradition, this culture maintains itself. You know, Barry Ancelet, my neighbor in, sure. in Lafayette, he's he has he's got the um the best uh Cajun metaphor about it. he says every time they're about to close the the casket on on the cadaver of Cajun culture the the body uh, sits up and asks for a beer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, perfectly, yeah. perfectly so you know phrased. but it's something that I think you know, I don't know if it's the same for Jewish people or 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 black people or the notion of some of a diaspora coming from some place. You know, but it's I think in a lot of ways when you're deprived of that heritage, and we were, uh, if you don't count the Indians, we were the victims of the largest ethnic cleansing in the history of North America, mm-hmm. and that story continues to resonate when you find out what happened to our ancestors. You can't help but be pissed off about it. Um, But it's not really about anger for me, it's really about the positive aspects of tenacity and hope and courage and all of these things that our ancestors were able to transmit to us the values that allowed them to go through all those difficulties and to still maintain their um, sense of humor. Because Cajun people are known to be, you know, it's like the Richard Terrio jokes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should start those instead of Boudreaux Tillett. Richard Terrio jokes. Yeah, those would be a little more uh, sophisticated. Yeah, a little more introspective and yeah, dark probably. You know that that lineage of the Cajuns and and, um, and where it brings us today. I mean, I got to be honest with you. When I was a kid growing up, I never knew that last names. I thought names that weren't in the phone book, you know, our phone book, which were all French last names. Mm-hmm. All those names were strange. You know, I never thought our the names in the phone book, all the French names, I could pronounce. So it's like no problem. You know, you don't think about that stuff when you're a kid hearing my dad listen to Cajun music every weekend in the, in the garage mm-hmm. while he's working on stuff with the radio blaring, you know, all this Cajun mm-hmm. music collection. He would take me to Festival de Cajun when I was a kid, yeah. you know, try to get me to play Cajun fiddle. You're trying to do that to a 13-year-old kid who's in the Eddie Van Halen, you know what I mean? And you, I, at some point, you know, in working with you, I kind of felt a little of the guilt, like, man, I should have learned French.
2: I don't think it's about guilt, Shane. You know, it's really about you know the positive aspects of it. You know, because, yeah. um, and, and that's the key. It has to be attractive. You know, you can't impose culture. I mean, the kids today. There's a whole new generation of young Cajun musicians. The Lost Bayou Ramblers and the Pine Leaf Boys and the Cedric right. Benois, and they're all redefining the tradition. Because they're attracted to it, not because they had to do it. And that's the whole key. It has to be attractive, you know. And there's aspects of the culture which are, even for a kid that grew up playing Eddie Van Halen, attractive, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what is just surprising to me is that in spite of the fact that it's been 250 years that our families have been in Louisiana, in spite of the fact that in that entire period we have been subject to um, assimilation, which was at the beginning of the 20th century uh, very violently practiced on on children i mean your grandparents certainly and and maybe your dad even were um punished when they were speak i mean physically beaten when they were yeah, speaking kids french that's exactly instance, school.
1: right i remember being a little kid and i remember being in the 70s you know early 80s my grandparents on my father's side they all that's all they spoke in front of us was french when mm-hmm. they didn't want us to understand right my dad i remember vividly i mean you you remember my dad he speak mm-hmm. french my grandfather my mom's dad spoke he's still alive speaks french Right. He would I remember when he drove me to school in, in Los Angeles to start music school there was a guy named Jean-Pierre from Paris and my grandfather went right up to him como se va started talking right. and I was just amazed that mm-hmm. I had heard my other set of grandparents speak French but not this one right. and um he, they carried on a conversation, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And a couple of weeks later, when I ran into Jean-Pierre in class, we had started class, I asked him, could you understand my, father, my grandfather? He goes, oh, yeah, perfectly. But um, it was kind of uh, Shakespeare kind of, uh, right, right. which I thought was amazing. That's when it mm. really hit. I think sometimes being out of, it, you have to get out to really see what you have right. inside, right, you know, right. and appreciate it you know
2: the language is a fundamental aspect of a culture because it not only um is a method of communication but it's also an identity marker you know but french is still holding on in louisiana and because of education now in the schools there's reason to believe that new generations will be able to converse fluently in french so um that's you know that's my advice to you. Go to school and learn how to yeah. talk French. <laughs> <laughs> I can help you with that. <laughs>
1: I remember my grandmother, uh, who's no longer alive. They they got punished if they spoke French in school. Yeah, you and know, that you got... would have been probably nine, early nineteen thirties, maybe late 1920s. Right. Tw- yeah. So
2: what do you, you know? You're a kid. You go to school. How does that make you feel when when mm-hmm. the your maternal language the only the only language that you can speak. Um, it has social consequences Mm -hmm. so you're humiliated at best and and beaten at worst and your parents cannot speak that language so um, how do they feel you know because Mm -hmm. I'm I'm certain that my grandparents were delighted that their children my parents were able to uh, get an education Mm -hmm. I just don't really know how that made them feel the fact that it was in a foreign language that they did 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 not could not speak so there's a lot of ambivalence. I'd written a song called No French No More, you might remember. I wanted to yeah,
1: talk about, about, about it, actually. that, actually. It's on know? my list. Yeah.
0: Like my papa, playing. Wear a suit dirt, never touch my hands. But I still see the
2: look. But, in um, you know, I don't think there's any point in like. Casting ourselves in, as victims, you know, that's what, just what happened. Yeah. What we can do now is just to celebrate our heritage and to transmit that to the future generations and mm-hmm. to share that with anybody that's interested, whether they're Cajun or not, you know, because mm-hmm. the story is powerful. Yeah. And it's a very important aspect of American history that people really don't know about so that's what you know that's what we're here to do
1: well speaking of history i I want the listeners to know too you you went to tulane right and you majored in history (laughs) yeah yeah, but don't hold that against me (laughs) (laughs) no it's i think it's i think it's worth bringing up because uh you you got your degree and then you then you that's when you decided you wanted to do something with music besides the traditional route of cajun music even i don't know if you even had that in your head at that point but you Mm -hmm. left and you had this idea that you wanted to sort of push. Well, I, forward. I don't know
2: how I got. I was this was like I graduated, uh, quote unquote, in 1972, and by that time I had no. I mean, my hair was down to my butt, and I, all I wanted to do was to play guitar. And you know, I considered myself to be a folk singer and not mm-hmm. a wannabe um, lawyer, doctor, or Indian chief, which was what my you know I had been programmed to do. Um, so you know, I I got through college by chance or by accident, you know, that was really not the focus of my life. I'd started writing songs in 1970, and that's really all I wanted to do was play my guitar and write
0: songs. Let's
1: talk about music for a second. So I know Bob Dylan was probably an influence on you, right? Of course.
2: You know, I mean, it's like... um it's funny because it was all Canadians, you know, or people like Bob Dylan lives, you know, I mean, he's from Minnesota, yeah, which is from right people there. in Louisiana. That's, that's Canada anyway. Yeah, so right. it's like, you know, there was especially um, Neil Young, uh-huh. Joni Mitchell, uh, Leonard, Cohen, Leonard Cohen, all the singer songwriters. Uh, Robbie Roberts. Of course. And, and I was the last. People don't know this. Um, well, some people do, but, you know, there are not many of them. I was the last artist assigned to Electra before the merger before wea so um i was you know tim buckley uh, judy collins they were on the label and then david geffen came in and basically just you know f- fired all their all my people and i was in the middle of making a record which never came out or it came out 28 years later which is weird but anyway i got lost in a vault
1: what's the name of that record well it's called high
2: time and i recorded it we recorded it um at uh the record plant studio b and i remember because the allman brothers were an a at the time it was just like you know and i didn't know who they were but i found out later um, <laughs> steve gadd was on the session uh, johnny shoal johnny sigler i mean it was like the creme de la creme of, of new york mm-hmm. session players and um robert zachary was the producer we made the record and then geffen uh, took over the record company and basically I wasn't in his stable so I was just a problem basically yeah and uh and I was 20 years old and I didn't give a shit so I went to the to the vice president and I said man you guys can and i had been ill-advised that I had a lawyer who told me that he could get me a deal with Atlantic in like 10 minutes and so I went to Electra and I gave him the finger and said uh, you know you guys can <laughs> shove it and they were like Probably delighted because it was like oh, I was just a problem for them, they didn't know what yeah. to do with it.
0: Come on along, we take the parable down to Broadfield. Come on along, and we sit upon the bio dash. Sit on the oak stump and sip on the clear, clean moonshine.
2: And then, you know, I was like, you know, then I realized what I'd done. I was out on the street, they didn't have a record company, but I was only like 20, 21 years old. Yeah, man. But got all then the time in the world. I got the accordion because the record, they'd give me $2,500 in advance on the, on the record deal. And that was when my father realized that it was okay to be a musician because I'd made $2,500, you know? <laughs> And I sort of
1: validated something. Yeah,
2: you know, I mean, it's like I was making money. So he got into the program, and he actually financed my first record a couple of years later. Hmm. Um, But the Cajun part was—I mean, it wasn't—it wasn't Eddie Van Halen, but it was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Birds and Mm -hmm. Simon and Garfunkel. That's what I was listening to Mm -hmm. coming up. I, I knew that there was this thing called Cajun music. Uh, but I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't interested in it. There was nobody that I knew played it. Um, I knew that it existed because my grandmother, Passepartout on Sundays, she would have the KLFY broadcast on. So, you know, and it was kind of the soundtrack to my childhood that way, to my Sundays at at Mongan's house. But I didn't really have any interest in Cajun music Mm -hmm. at all until I got the record deal. And then there was this kind of back-to-the-roots thing going on in America at the time. Willie Nelson was really popular. I sleep at the wheels playing at Jay's Lounge in Canton, So there was all this kind of back-to-the-roots kind of vibe going on. And the Cajun thing was in my wheelhouse. I mean, it was our identity. And I didn't know anything about it. So I bought the accordion. I had $400. I went to see Mark Savoy, and there was this beautiful rosewood accordion. Um, which I lost last year in a flood, but anyway. Mm. Um, and he refused to sell it to me. He said, "I guess he wanted me to prove my prove you were worthy of the, the yeah, sword." Right. So <laughs> he, you know, he said, "Can I?" I said, "Can I buy that?" He said, "No." I said, "Why not?" Said, eh. So I came back like you know enough times and pestered him. Finally, so he sold me the thing. And then I just sat there with the Iron Maiden record in a turntable, and then just lifted the record arm and. Tried to cop the lick and, you know, just lick by lick. Finally, after about six months, I could play the song.
1: What was the song? It was
2: Je Passé Devant Ta Porte, mm-hmm. traditional waltz. And I took it to my grandmother and played it for her. And she was delighted, you know. Um, and I said, you know, this is, I had the record company and I was going to New York. I had, going to make this record. And I had spent the last six months on Orange Street. I lived in North Lafayette on Orange Street, right around the corner from Magnolia where Clifton Chenier lived. And, you know, that was just, I tell people, I used to tell people that I moved there because of Cliff, but that's not <laughs> true. I moved there because it was a cheap house to rent. And it just happened <laughs> it that just it happened. was around the corner a little, from Clifton Chenier. little benefit,
1: um, side benefit to it. Yep. So could, then,
2: you know, I started playing Cajun music and, you know, the rest is history, as they say.
1: Could we sidestep a second? I'm wondering if you could maybe play some on the accordion. I'm, you know,
2: I'm really not, don't consider myself to be an No, just
1: player. a couple little licks, you know, because... Um, I do one thing, I'm
2: sort of like, I'm a harmonica player too, because I, I did the same thing with, with the blues harp, you know, but it was it was, you know, Little Walter and James Cotton and those cats that I was listening to. Um, but there's so many cats that play.
1: So this is an accordion that that I my dad never got to play unfortunately and so I've mm-hmm. kind of inherited it back um, but you had looked at it once and Joel Sanye looked at it once and I had both of you over here playing at a different time and I thought man I got like two of the favorite badass Louisiana musicians playing this thing mm-hmm. so that's a good accordion you <laughs> know
0: what about my mom? yeah boy. Sauvez mon âme, déplante en bas, il est mon
2: It's hard to it's hard to uh, it's hard to play in an acoustic setting because of the there's nothing on, on the but the, the one and, and the four yeah. on the left side so when you get to the five yeah it's a
1: four of... it implies the four chord over that yeah, yeah I know yeah, I think a... it needs a little work that I, I remember you telling me it was the action or whatever it's called an accordion is a yeah. little it's, higher it's, but it sounds, it sounds great it. in here man with these high ceilings I love the sound of it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk, since we. I do have a lot of listeners that uh, are guitar players, you know. I mean, you have a unique association with a couple of guitar players, uh, most notably Sonny Landreth, right. who played in your band. Now, was that Zach Attack? Was Sonny and Zach Attack? Let's see.
2: Sonny, you know, so, uh, for the people who don't know the amazing story of Sonny Landreth, Sonny Landreth grew up in, in uh, um, northern Mississippi, um, around clarksville i believe and you know like in the delta so i don't know what that had to do with it but um they moved his family moved to lafayette and sonny started playing electric guitar when he was like 10 years old and he became um according to uh, eric clapton um, probably the best slide player of Modern times. You know. He's my favorite. He's Sonny's, definitely the most. Sonny's, yeah, Sonny's mm-hmm. just an amazing, amazing talent. And Sonny played with Cliff. He was the first white guy to play in Clifton's band. Um, and then he left Cliff, and he was with me for uh, got about three or four years mm-hmm. uh, in the late '80s. Um, Um, No, late 70s, I'm thinking. Late 70s, early 80s, you know? Yeah. And and then he went on to form his own band, and he hadn't looked back since.
1: And there's a live record. I I had it. Uh, Is it live in Montreal? Right, right, right. also i remember playing with you in maybe it was toronto or someplace and this guy comes up with these little john lennon glasses on oh yeah we start talking Mm -hmm. and he goes yeah, he complimenting on my guitar playing, and, and he said, "Yeah, I'm a friend of Zachary's. I'm Bill Dylan." I go, "Wow, Bill Dylan!" Right. I, you know, right. for those of you that don't know, he was for a while he was in the stable of Daniel Lanois' musicians when he had his sort of residency in New Orleans. I guess at that point.
2: Well, that was actually before because they oh. both came from Ontario, and you know, uh, um, Daniel Lanois has been credited with creating this entire landscape of sound which is influenced by brian eno to a great extent Mm -hmm. but um the untold story and uh you know um dan might not uh agree with me but a lot of that had to do with bill dylan because bill and 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 daniel were recording together in Mm -hmm. on toronto at the beginning and um I, i i don't know exactly when i found out about Bill Dylan, but when I did, man, it's just like whoa, you know. And he was on uh, my 1996 recording called Rage which is mm-hmm. the, the yep. most successful record that I've ever done. And I think in large part to two guitar players, um, um, Bill Dylan, who was this, the king of, of atmosphere. You know, I remember going to get him at the airport, and it was just like, you know, here was this skinny dude with these little beetle glasses and Beetle boots and a beetle hat, dragging literally a duffel bag full of petals. You know, I mean, it was just like he was literally dragging it off the plane. And when we laid it all out, it like took it would probably take up half this living room. His pedal board was, you know, it was about 20 feet square. Yeah, <laughs> And it just, you know, and, and but Bill's like an amazing cat to work with because he's like um, he considers himself to be a painter. You know, at least that's, that's what he says. You know, he uh-huh. says he's always dealing in colors and atmosphere as opposed to sound and it's true in a way because i mean it's all about washes and he's such an incredible um he has such finesse for sound yeah and um the guitar which is like an instrument that only he can play um really i bought one uh, because of him i found one in, in a pawn shop in toronto and it's like i don't know if you know your listeners know what a guitar is but check it out it's this cross between an organ and a guitar And it's got sensors in the fretboard, which is actually what emits the sound. You don't strum the thing. It doesn't have any pickups. It's got these sensors on the frets that generate sound some kind of way. And it's got, I opened it up one time, it's got about 25 miles of cable inside the (laughs) the axe. Anyway, uh, and, and Bill... Perfected the style of that thing, which is something that I think he's been really the only person in. Is, his there, history.
1: A, is there a particular track or tracks that you remember off your record that maybe that's on, or, or any uh, Bill Bill Dylan stuff that's? Uh...
2: Well, you know that album Capon Rage which was done in nineteen ninety six. Um, I don't none of the. Uh, there's something called the Nord Canadien, which comes to mind, which is an atmospheric mm-hmm. piece about mm-hmm. um, the Great White
0: North. La solitude et l'oubli dans son solo dans le, le nom oh 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 And
2: all of these just incredible sounds and his effects and his Notion of effects and the the use of delay and Mm -hmm. um, chorusing all that. You know, he's really a master Mm -hmm. at. He's a he's a one of a kind, and he's still living and working uh, in Ontario. uh, Incredible player, and um, I haven't seen him in a while, but I know he's still alive and kicking and doing Mm -hmm. well. So, you know, if you're listening in, Bill, keep it up. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. He was a nice cat. I, I remember exchanging contact information coffee
2: man it was like it's like he's like espresso addict you know He'd have a little stand when he was working here in new orleans he had driven that he was like a car freak too He'd oh yeah down in an xke jaguar wow and um he would sit at land they'd made him this little stand it was like a mic stand with a tray for his coffee and you just like keep expressos one after coming. another drink you know 20 espressos in a session, you just keep it, you know. So, um, intense dude, but but a beautiful player, and really a sweet man. Freddie Coella, I don't know if you want to talk about Freddie, but Freddie was sure talk Freddie about was who I... for a while. I'm just you know going yeah. through my inventory of incredible guitar players, you know. Um, Freddie, I met in France, and I actually was responsible for him coming over to the United States. He and a drummer and a bass player lived in a trailer that I had rented and put on my my property in Scott, and they were just sort of like French rhythm <laughs> section, <laughs> illegal aliens. So, you know, and, and and he went on to have an amazing career. He was with Dylan for uh, many years, and he's still active in Los Angeles, playing a lot with with French artists because mm. he's, he's yeah, that's he's, he's from yeah. Strasbourg, but oh, actually, he's from um, Alsace Lorraine. Uh, incredible player. Anyway, you know, I, I've had the f- Fortune, the really a, 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 the great fortune of playing with such amazing musicians, you mm-hmm. know. So, I mean, you included among in that number. Um, so, you know, yeah, and I love, you know, I'm a wannabe guitar player myself. So, you know, I, I appreciate it uh, particularly.
1: Coming up the way you did, kind of rediscovering Cajun music, but you took it a different direction. You didn't sort of reinvent you know, Jolet Blanc, or Apelousa or so something like that. You put these political and this passion, the, the lyrics, into the traditional conduit of like the Cajun music instrumentation. I mean, did you, been... did you meet any like resistance with that? Like, when, well, was it, when was your first debut and like when you hit, did people go, what is this? This isn't Cajun music. Did uh, you, ever... you
2: know, when, when I put my first record out, I remember, I, I wasn't there to see this, but I was told that Mark Savoy, who's kind of the, the, um, uh, um the, Le Dwayne, the 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 master of, yeah. of contemporary cajun accordion accordion, uh, he threw my album he was an lp he threw it across his record shop and said this is not cajun this is not country this is not rock this is bullshit
1: <laughs> he should have sold you the accordion <laughs> he did you know? yeah, but it was too late you know he'd already <laughs> sold it to me
2: so maybe he regrets it um but it's like you know i'm a I'm a folk singer I'm a songwriter that's, yeah, that's what yeah, I am yeah. but I play accordion on occasion or have done and my name is pronounced funny so people go oh that must be Cajun music which I guess in a way it is in as much as I'm part of a tradition but my real identity as a songwriter is in the American tradition uh, you know those influences that we mentioned Dylan and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen et cetera, et etc those are the people that have influenced me the most. I also write in French, and I've had the good fortune to be able to develop my songwriting as a French-speaking North American songwriter. Um, so, you know, is it Cajun music? Uh, strictly speaking, no. You know, um, but it gets confusing because you know, I pay homage to the tradition, but in just in terms of style, I've probably written that I know of three songs in the tradition that come to mind you know out of I don't know 300 so it's not the focus of my um, it's not the focus of of my songwriting but it's an important aspect of my life and and of my identity Um, but what I try to do is to uh, write songs regardless of what language that they're in that will communicate to people and that I'll be able to inspire and touch and um, entertain and to make reflect and to influence eventually uh, people who appreciate my songs.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: The guitar that you're playing, Zach, is my 1952 Gibson J45, which has an interesting story because Mm. I sort of had to woo this guitar to to get it. I found it, and it was across the lake in Mandeville, Louisiana, and you went with me on a Sunday morning to look at this guitar.
2: Yeah, and the guy was like, it it was a... You know, house in suburbia, and the guy was kind of like not really all that friendly. It I was think. weird. Yeah. He
1: didn't really want to sell it. What, right. what happened? But uh, you see that big Nick, that big pretty ding. Yep. I took that guitar out of a case on the way to a session one day in a mm. hurry, and bam! I mean, it was mint condition up till then. But and that one hurt, yeah. man.
2: Yeah. Well, I got a '57. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that guitar. Yeah, but, uh, I remember. You know, it. It's like first cousin. I mean, just J45 early 50s j45s is like man if i was on a desert island with one thing it would be a 1950s j45 it's
1: the perfect i've said this in a guitar magazine it's the perfect eq curve for recording the martin sometimes can be a little boomier you know the d28s but the j45 it's something about it it's fat and it'll still sit in a mix and it won't be too boomy you know
2: and it's a pretty guitar too man you know it's like you know the martins are known for their uh, clear finishes, but you know, this sunburst is just you know, so classy. It's beautiful, yeah,
1: yeah, it looks it's it still it's pretty. pretty. Could we play maybe a little bit of uh, Lac Bijou, I Oh, sure, r- sort of remember that. It's, I would listen to it last night, it was such a beautiful song. You want to say what it's about, real quick? And...
2: Um... Songs for me, Shane, are, are, you know, they're like a mystery. I don't really... I'm not a very disciplined songwriter. I just kind of walk down the street and something just happens, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and this song, I had... It was originally called Loch Begno, which is... If you go to the Atchafalaya Basin mm-hmm. at Henderson, there's a cut that'll take you back, um, way in the back. And and if you're not really careful, you, you could get lost back there. But there's a place called Loch Begno. So I'd written a song called Lock Begno, and I put it in a drawer... And it just stayed there for, I don't know, a long time. Um, Bijou is the French word for jewel. And that, it became, it went from Lac Begno to Lac Bijou. And it's a story of um, uh, purple martins, you know, those beautiful birds that come back. And it's a story of love and faithfulness and see these two birds keep coming back and coming back but one year there's only one of them Mm. and so it's it's a song it's a little bit of a nostalgic uh uh, bird watching piece
1: i love it (laughs)
0: Oh, oh, feuillage où les branches vont le groucher, les reviennent chaque printemps. Il Ils se réfugient dans ce chêne Don't turn me Rest of it more love me. Dans ces gants de sel, La première fois je les ai vus Un grand monsieur noir comme la nuit Certains mois s'est si l'avait pris. Il revenait quand l'hiver était fini Je les appelais Pierre et Marie Un grand monsieur Noir comme la nuit S'adapte à moi S'est levé de nuit T'en fais mes bras Tiens-moi serré encore Rest avec moi on but let Oh, but love it Dernier mot d'avril Je l'ai vu une dernière fois Un oiseau seul Posé sur sa branche Oh God, you love me, you You're L'hiver est fini Du matin au soir, jusqu'au dimanche, qu'il est parti aussi du bas du lac du jour. Tonne dans mes bras. J'aime moi. Stop it more all but the de and blame what about you love me you stop it more on the shame and blame what you love me
1: Yeah, it's nice to play that after <laughs> however long it was. it's been. Yeah, some songs,
2: or... some songs like age well, you know? Yeah. Some, some, some of the shit that I wrote, I got me, yeah, 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 that's not, you yeah. know. But this, one is, this one's kind of, I guess that's what makes it a classic, you know? Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, it's beautiful, too. Mm-hmm. To write something that you're so passionate about, something like No French No More, how does it feel to perform in front of a large crowd, to know your messages, you know, how's that feel when it resonates with that many people? Is there, because I felt it playing with you. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I didn't even think about that subject before it came up, you know, and it's such a yeah. strong thing.
2: Well, there's two things, you know, um, and, and I, I don't, I've never attempted to um, deliver a message in a song. Hmm. and maybe some people do but I, I i have I don't know if it's respect but I'm a little bit more awed by the magic of the, the experience I've never sat down to say oh today I'm going to write a song about this or today I'm going to write a song about that I've always just kind of jammed and you know my uh, instrument of, of choice is, is an acoustic guitar so you just sit there and you know I know three chords basically so I'll just you know i play them, and I'll just go blah, 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 blah. And every once in a while, something will come out of that, uh, you know, just a little. Or I'll hear a piece of melody. Sometimes I even dream melodies. So that's like the key that opens a door, and then you just go down the hallway and see what you can find. Um, eventually, that'll transform itself. That blah, blah becomes a word. And it's like I'm very Jungian, as in Carl Jung. So there's this energy field this universal super consciousness that everybody is Mm -hmm. part of and you know the the work of the artist is to somehow open up the passageway into that and allow that to come into the conscious world and to use those experiences to create art no matter what form that happens to take and that's what happens to me and you know so I'll go, well, today I'm going you know, to write a song about shooting the guy with the weed eater.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a good one. But, I'm about to do that. You no, know, I've never
2: consciously decided to write about anything. Yeah. You know, it's like, but I'm a human being and I have feelings and a, and a head and a heart. So there's things that are part of my life, like the natural environment of Louisiana. You know, you think yeah. about sunset on Louisiana. I never yep. sat down and go, oh, I'm going to write a song about protecting the gulf coast of louisiana i just started to write a song and it just seemed that that was a good thing to write about because it was something that i felt strongly yeah and i could communicate well or at least as as well as i can and that's what it's all about to me so these songs and I, you know especially in french the french language stuff because there are songs that ave comes to mind no french no more which is actually bilingual um and there are other tunes which are more in, inspired by the natural environment but never have i ever sat down to deliberately write about something that could be considered to be propaganda i've never mm-hmm. said well today i'm going to write a song about you know the oil spill because it's mm-hmm. important that we mm-hmm. save the coast it's just this i get inspired to write a song and it just leads to that place because that's who i am and that's part of my life which is the way it should be because I don't I refuse categorically to re, to subject my songwriting to propaganda even though I feel really strongly about a lot of things mm-hmm. I would never I think it would be a sacrilege to take the magic and the mystery of the song and to put it to the service of any cause no matter what that cause right. is no matter how good the cause is no matter how strongly I feel about it but there are songs like "No French" or "Reve" or, 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 or "Le Fou," uh, which is, speaks about the oil spill in 2010, which have a social resonance, and I'm very proud of that. In spite of the fact that I don't really have a, a direct. Um, Involvement in the—it's—it's it's not as though it's a deliberate effort on my part to influence the way people think or the way they feel about things. But it's just, well, you know, you know the term lanyap. Yeah. That to me is the lanyap of some of my songs because instead of just talking about crawfish and filet gumbo or or a broken heart, sometimes I saw, I, I sing about things of, of social consequence which I would be very proud to believe would have a positive impact on the way that people think or the way they feel about certain things, like the natural environment, like the French language in Louisiana, um, like the state of, of, of culture in North America, etc. Um, but it's not a deliberate effort on my part. So when it happens, it's really lanyap. It's like the song mm-hmm. is giving back to me. A
1: little extra is for for yeah. those of you that don't know what lanyap means. It means something, something a little extra. That's, that's interesting. I actually didn't even know that. I, I didn't realize it wasn't a attempt to not that it sounds contrived or anything you know yeah,
2: But if it was oh, i yeah. think it would sound contrived if you know you sat down and say well today i'm going to save the yeah. planet yeah you know i'm going to write a song Be like about... we are
1: the world or something yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. you know i mean and uh, i just can't do that I don't, i'm not i'm not a disciplined songwriter i know songwriters that i mean i did that too you probably have i'm sure uh done the you know the eleven, twelve, one o'clock nashville thing yeah. you just go from office to office sit there with somebody and you try to do something and you know something happened I did that for a while and you know I wrote songs with other people like that but I've never recorded them and I don't think any of them ever were recorded because I was never really inspired it's yeah, by... more of a
1: factory approach a yeah. like rubber stamp approach yeah. That, that to the... me
2: it's, it's like you know i am just be walking in the airport and I'll hear something and and I can't wait to get back to the guitar when I can like actually, and then what it's about kind of happens later and what language it is is that I don't even choose that I don't choose because yeah. I write in two languages and I've written probably as many songs in both languages which language do I pick I don't pick it's the sound of the that kind of Dictates. nebulous word mm-hmm. that is already in a language so when I hear a sound I can tell from the diphthong whether it's in French or in English so mm-hmm. I know right away what language the song has decided that it wants to be in
1: mm-hmm.
2: so it's it's a much more natural and organic and totally lazy process for me you know it's like I don't really I don't consider lazy I mean all
1: all my favorite the the favorite singer-songwriters that I've ever had the pleasure to work with they all have described a similar process they don't Mm -hmm. think about that stuff they just kind of happens they hear it in their head and they develop it yeah it's not something they sit down like like I'm gonna bake a chocolate cake today no it's you think about an idea and you develop it
0: Married a girl from Porsche Bridge Raised a family of Cajun kids Nobody did know better than we did but Things can always change My papa's been a trapper living hand to mouth When I made shop for when I had it all figured out I thank God each and every day When the industry comes Sunset on Louisiana Sun going down on my promised land I've given you everything
1: I can. I can What's that tune, Someday? Oh, sure. Remember okay. that tune? I had to change the tuning heads on that thing before they disintegrate.
0: Someday I'll be going Someday I'll be going on. Don't you know I know I got a long way to go? Someday I'll be going on. I'll be riding on a cold black Tennessee street, Riding on a cold black Tennessee sky. burning fire with elegance and speed. I'll be riding on a gold black to the city I'll be wearing a gold solid gold. wearing a gold solid gold. shining like the sun a true beauty to behold wearing a gold solid gold want to the bridge. see my mama and my And my sister, too. Yeah. Don't you know? I know I got a long way to go. Someday I'll go. Tastes like wine. Gonna wear the water, taste like wine. I'm gonna get drunk every morning. I wanna feel good all the time. Gonna wear the water, tastes like wine. Get a breath. Gonna see my mama and my papa, brothers and my sisters.
1: Zachary thank you man for doing this
2: my pleasure Shane always you mm-hmm. know it's always fun to play so absolutely I hope
1: it's not tea and Japanese cakes I'll come over <laughs> anytime <laughs> and there's more <laughs> alright thanks for uh, for listening alright there you have it Mr. Zachary Richard I hope you enjoyed that one that was a really special one if you'd like to hear more of these with guests such as Mike Stern, John Schofield, Dweezil Zappa, Warren Martini from Rat, and we really run the gamut here, I'm going to keep interviewing friends until I run out. Um, go to my website, shaneterrier.com, click on podcast, they're all there. iTunes, they're all there. And I have some more surprises in store, hopefully in the next few months. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening.